Greetings, Trinitarians. I'm so glad that you've clicked on this episode of Trinity Radio. We're excited about the content in this episode. However, there was a little bit of a debate about whether to release this one because the audio on uh, Leighton Flowers' end is a little bit echoey for most of the interview. In fact, Dr. Pritchett said he wouldn't even be able to listen to it. So um, we thought about ditching it because we really do care about quality uh, on the tech side of things at Trinity Radio, but we thought it through and it's really hard for us to get the free time to do podcasts and we love the podcast. So I thought I'd rather put something out, even if it's not perfect, than to miss a week. So here it is. And I'm sorry about the audio quality on Layton's end. That's our fault, not his. And um, if you make it through to the end, well, then may your children rise up and call you blessed. So it's here's, not heresy. It's come on. No, it's Harris' son. Wow! They gave us nothing but tradition and no argument. All they did was get on this stage, yell real loud, and set a straw man on fire. Okay, now this is. I, I, I was not impressed. <laughs> Respectfully, that sounds like a little bit of a dodge. I'm claiming victory. So where I come from, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Why is this so difficult? I'm not... Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is... Jonathan Pritchett. And today is a special episode of Trinity Radio as we are interviewing a guest for only the second time, though that might surprise you, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101. Now let me give a caveat that I've not had to give in quite some time because of the Soterio ban. And that caveat is that we are going to be talking about a debate that a Trinity professor, Leighton Flowers, recently had with someone on the incredibly well-known, unbelievable uh, Christian radio. And so it, it, it will involve the subject of soteriology. Um, soteriology has to do with how we understand salvation. And so because this can get so divisive, Dr. Pritchett and I instituted what is known as the Soterio Ban, a ban on for us, self-imposed, on discussing soteriological issues. And uh, I even said as recently as just two or three days ago that we were going to make it to the end of this season without uh, breaking the Soterio ban. But we did not. Go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we didn't, and I don't feel bad about that because Leighton Flowers is a very close friend of ours, and he had a debate, and by golly, we want to talk to our friend about his debate. This was actually the worst of all seasons to yeah. have a Soterio ban because— in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, which was not about Calvinism, but it did involve issues of right. libertarian freedom based on one of the arguments I brought, and Leighton dropped a new book and had this debate. And so right. there's a lot that you know kind of forced us to yeah, talk about Yeah, and he got this to issue. be on Unbelievable with Chris Date, whose first appearance on Unbelievable was wiping the floor with Al Mohler in their Rethinking Hell debate. We've talked about that in a previous episode. And if you've ever listened to Leighton Flowers and Chris Date speak, which they did for what seemed like forever on Soteriology 101, they came back and talked about the same thing again, which is fine, but briefer, so better. Uh, but if you watch, it's great. They're very friendly and cordial, and they make theological discussions fun instead of angry. 
you know? Yeah, so, so we're going to go to this um, this interview, this discussion uh, in just a moment. But I do want to say for those of you who are Trinity students or interested perhaps in becoming a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, I just want to say that we have professors who are both Calvinist and non-Calvinist. We have mostly Calvinist textbooks, I'd say. And so we, because we're a non-denominational school, we, uh, you're free to think here and you're free to uh, defend your position and explore other positions. So um, it, though Dr. Pritchett, myself, and Dr. Flowers, though none of us are Calvinists. Or Steve Gregg. If you're a Calvinist, and uh, this would still be a great place for you to come to school, and we won't grade you down because we personally disagree with you about things. Because after all, Dr. Pritchett and I disagree about some things, and Dr. Pritchett disagrees with me and Dr. Flowers about some things, and I don't know if Dr. Flowers and I disagree about anything, but I'm sure we will if we talk long enough. So, uh, But with all of those caveats out of the way, my wonderful, loving Calvinist brothers and sisters who are watching today, we love you. A big kiss from Dr. Jonathan Pritchett and myself to you, and we hope that all of you enjoy this show. This is the first word. Soterioban, Soterioban. Soterioban is the term coined by Drs. Jonathan Pritchett and Braxton Hunter for a season of fasting on Trinity Radio. Fasting from the subject of Calvinism, Arminianism, and a dash of Molinism. For those that may not know, these are theological positions as it relates to the uh, issues surrounding God's sovereignty and man's freedom and how those two interplay, categorical fallacy. But we tried to get away from these things for a while and focus on what really matters, and that's evangelism. This led us to talk almost exclusively about apologetics and worldview issues. It culminated in a debate between myself and Matt Dillahunty. And everything has been good in Trinity Radio Land without the soteriological discussions for some time now. And we've been quite happy despite what you may think. However, today, all of that ends. And we blame Leighton Flowers. Today's topic. Greetings and welcome back to the main show. Today we have Leighton Flowers, who after spending three hours on a Google Hangout, still wants to talk about his debate with Chris Date. How you doing, Leighton? <laughs> Good, Prime. How are you? Fine. So so you want to talk some more about this. Is that right? <laughs> I, I'm glad to talk about whatever your heart desires, my friend. Well, getting our opinion on anything is always important, so we want to make sure we have our say in, in your debate because um, what we have to say matters. So. The thing that I want to say about this is that I was so excited about this debate uh, because I think that Chris Date is probably one of the great debaters that uh, more people should know about. Um, I, I would not want to debate Chris. Um, and I do differ from Chris on uh, multiple issues, but I would not want to debate him because he's just incredible, just fantastic and very gracious, too. Um, also, uh, I wouldn't want to debate Leighton Flowers on anything because Leighton Flowers is likewise gracious, but also vicious. And so uh, I, I find myself looking at that guy's vicious. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I was in the debate when you're debating. And well, and so I'm sitting here looking at the unbelievable thing 
And I, I, by the way, Unbelievable, if people don't know, is a fantastic show out of the UK that has uh, all kinds of interesting theological and, and uh, apologetics types discussions. And so it's a big deal that you guys were both on Unbelievable as far as I'm concerned. Or I should say it's probably not a big deal for you, but it would have been for me. And so I think that's incredible. And there's a big what's that? I said, no, it was a big deal for me too. I, I enjoyed, I was honored to be asked to be on the program. I've listened to it for a long time. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think, uh, Chris is a, a formidable opponent when it comes to, uh, any, any of his views that he holds to, he always thinks through his views very carefully and articulates them very clearly. Um, I, I especially for a view that's as indefensible as the view of, uh, theistic determinism is, he does, I think, as good a job as anyone can do defending an indefensible position. But um, uh, I, I think he does. Uh, uh, he's always cordial, and he always addresses the the person, the the not the person, but the argument. And I, I appreciate that about him. I agree. And let's go ahead and say this right now because we want Jonathan to feel like he can truly be Jonathan Pritchett Prime. <laughs> and so uh, he is actually going to be speaking at a conference with Chris uh, that Chris is hosting later in the year. And so for that reason, he may feel this impulse to restrain himself. <laughs> and so I want to go ahead and free loose the chains as the, yeah, Chris at, Date knows that I love Chris Date. I am a big fan of Chris. Unlike them, I would actually yeah. debate him on anything except for the doctrine of hell, but I would debate him on anything else. But it would be so much fun because I really love this guy. He's really a great guy. And you can tell from his interactions with Layton and this one was uh, on unbelievable was good. I'm glad I got to hear it in advance because I don't like listening to all the commercials. But um so as the Pritchett whisperer, yeah. I am loosing the chains <laughs> that bind. No, I I, I thought he's it was gonna a good, talk about I, the ideology, not the man. Yeah, I well a little I'll take some cheap shots, of course. He expects that. <laughs> <laughs> um but but, but no I, I, I we're big fans of Chris. I really and think that y'all's discussion, even more so than um some other people like James White, Michael Brown. I think that y'all's discussion actually uh, is the true model for how people should uh, debate and dialogue on issues of disagreement. Because, I mean, look, uh, I disagree with both of you guys uh, on, on some stuff, and it's, who cares? Yeah, so <laughs> Leighton, let's jump right in here. Tell me, that, let's start this way. What do you? What would you say you think that Chris did well in this discussion? Are there is there something specifically you'd say, man? I, I have to admit he did that really well. Now it doesn't mean that he like scored points on you or anything, but in terms of a uh, an online discussion, something that you wish more people, perhaps that you debate with or discuss with, might try to emulate. Is there is there anything in particular? Well, he's always real clear about his views. He's very articulate. Um, I think his focus on the grammatical aspects with regard to Genesis 50 was probably uh, the strongest sounding for those who may have been, you know, following the argument. But the problem was, is that I, I didn't have a grammatical problem with his view. Uh, I have no problem with saying that God meant or devised the, the evil event that happened to, uh, to Joseph. Um, and so he kept harping on that as if I did disagree with his grammatical conclusions when I didn't. Um, and that, I think we learned later in our back and forth Facebook messenger, we, we messaged back and forth. And I was trying to clarify, why, why did you keep pushing on this grammatical point when I already conceded that? And we, we finally came to the conclusion that he had just misunderstood 
my argument. I wasn't making the same argument that maybe Roger Olson or others make that God never devises uh, an evil event or get never means for an evil event to take place. I think the crucifixion was an evil event that God meant or intended to happen. Yeah. Now let's, let's clarify that for a minute so that because we're interested in uh, apologetics and we love the, uh, to use the free will theodicy when it comes to the problem of suffering, why would God allow pain and suffering in the world? And so what you're saying is not, is very different from what our reformed brothers and sisters would say. You're not saying God intended this crafted this, uh, in the manner that, uh, by which we mean that he like um, forced people to do the things that they did. What you're saying is more like uh, your incredible analogy of um, uh, of a sting operation or something like that, right? So why don't you uh, explain that a, a little more? Yeah, and the sting operation analogy is just it's just an analogy. It's it's to give uh, an explanation as to how someone can intend an evil event without themselves being evil. So cops are not evil, assumably, you know, obviously in this, this, this scenario, the cops are good cops, but they are bringing about an event that's an evil event. They are manipulating the criminals in such a way, hiding their identity, uh, helping them to plan and to devise this selling of drugs or selling of a slave, whatever, you know, analogy you want to use there. Um, but that doesn't mean make that doesn't mean they have an evil intention, nor does it mean that they're controlling or somehow devising or somehow causing the evil intentions of the criminals. Um, the cops are autonomously separate from the criminal while still being um, uh, implicit within the devising of this evil event. And so you can have your cake and eat it too in that regard uh, of saying that, um, uh, that th there's a good person who is bringing about an evil event or working to bring about an evil event without being the, device, the decisive cause of the evil people's thoughts, desires, actions, and motives, um, which is the part I was trying to harp on with regard to uh, Joseph's brothers, because Joseph's brothers intended to kill him because of pride. And by focusing on 1 John uh, 2.16, which says that pride is not from the Father, but from the world, demonstrates that determinism is not a, a viable option as to describing what God is doing behind the scenes, because ultimately determinism would mean that pride originates in God's decree rather than in creation. Yeah, and I thought that I agree with you that what Chris did well was um, he really did uh, get into that, uh, you know, the original language stuff and looking at those things. But I thought it was great when you just kind of said, yeah, okay, I can grant you your uh, understanding of that. And it's still, I can still make my point, right? I mean, that's what you were trying to say. I'm already look, so I knew it was coming. It wasn't like I was, I was surprised by his grammatical argument. I mean, and I've heard him talking about it before on other programs. So I wasn't surprised by it. But my my rebuttal, plain rebuttal, was, yeah, I, I agree. And then and then move on to talk about you know the the means by which God does what He does. Um, and 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 that's why I was, and I expected Chris to follow that because he's otherwise very sharp and usually understands arguments pretty pretty clearly and pretty well and i thought he already kind of knew what i would be saying too so it, it took a turn in in that discussion because i really did expect him to have a rebuttal from my perspective versus to continue to harp on a grammatical issue i'd already conceded yeah. and of course with this last blow of a discussion with commercials and everything else it's it's that's why i said well i'll just let the audience decide you know there at the end because i, I didn't have time to try to Correcting me yet again to say that's that's not our point of contention here. Yeah. Well, I, and I want to plug Chris's book because I wrote a blurb for it and read it myself. And uh, 
of course, the blurb for me is the best part of the book, but the rest of the book is okay too. Uh, so I really, I, I highly want to recommend it. I think it's, uh, you can get it on Amazon, um, but I think it's also going to be coming out for our uh, Logos users. So they should pay $20 just to get your blurb. That's what you're saying. No, but, uh, you know, uh, the thing about these blurbs is, guys, we really need to stop giving those out without kickback. So, I mean... <laughs> Forget ethics. Hey, he asked me for a blurb, and I didn't give him one. Of course, I just forgot to give him one. Well, I I I actually read the books that I give blurbs to. It's a good book. It's it's one of the better uh, debate books on that subject for for people just wanting to get into it. But anyway, uh, so I wanted to plug the book. Here's my thing about this whole grammar business. You know, uh, we, we're seminary educators, so we see this a lot with. Uh, Seminary students who have a year of languages under their belt, they think that they can go to the original languages and make a grammatical point to press a metaphysical claim. And, <laughs> sorry folks, reality doesn't work that way. If, uh, if it, it, take God out of the sentence and put Jim Bob there, nobody would be ma making metaphysical claims, right? About Jim Bob. About Jim Bob, because, because Jim Bob intended it for good to bring about whatever. Okay, you, you swap that yeah. out. And that's exactly why, exactly why I use the cop analogy, because showing Jim Bob the cop intended that uh, selling of drugs doesn't prove Jim Bob, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing about Jim Bob's eternal. Right, there's no uh, Jim Bob determinism. There's no Jim Bob eternal decrees. Well, let's take a, there's, let's no, take a, there's no two wills in Jim Bob. There's You don't jump to all of these metaphysical claims just because one party intended the same thing another party intended for a different reason. Um, wow. so that was my, the fundamental error with a lot of, and C.S. Lewis warned about this a long time ago, that nonsense doesn't stop being nonsense just because you make God the subject of a sentence. Uh, so no, it, it's true. I don't know where that comes from. Well, that's not a, that's not a, as a paraphrase, but, but, um, uh, I, like your, I like your paraphrase maybe better than. Lewis's quote then, because I like. Yeah, but <laughs> I like it. But but the the principle is, is for some reason we think that okay we're now talking about religious stuff so we can get nutty about things. Uh, now determinism may be true, uh, compatibilism whatever may be true. There may be some all encompassing deterministic decree whatever. Uh, you're not gonna get it from Genesis fifty twenty because it doesn't even talk about any of that. But I, I agree with your claim because I made that claim in our debate that you're not going to get it from any single text in the Bible because I agree with you that there's right. there's no Bible verse that demands philosophical theistic determinism as a metaphysic for understanding how the unfolding of time and human volition works with God's actions in, in the cosmos. There, you don't get it. That's why no matter how many times our dear Calvinistic friends want to insist, um, half the things that they're talking about aren't even, you know, the, their proof texts have nothing to do with the subject that they're, they're pressing them in the service for. And I, right. I, I think that both sides can be guilty of that. Um, but our side less so, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so you're saying that forno doesn't mean super forno and five other things just because God's the subject. Of what we're right. About. Um, yeah. You know, this is. Uh, Do you have any other questions for Layton's uh, for Jonathan since we're interviewing Jonathan? Layton? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I just wanted to make that point that I, in any debate, people are going to try to use these kinds of tactics, but it's more rhetoric than actually proving a point. Um yeah. Uh, Leighton Flowers, your master's degree is an MDiv with an emphasis in biblical languages, but 
he he knows he's not going to start. I'm right about that, right? I read your resume yes. correct. Yes. Okay, just yes, making sure did. that that you, you didn't did just making sure you didn't lie on your application to teach at Trinity. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so so, but you know, we don't we don't try to make those kinds of arguments. Um, I know that like James White makes these kinds of arguments in John six and all of these other things. He starts talking about metaphysics instead of Jesus just having a conversation. But uh, that's a problem that, that I don't want to pick on your particular debate specifically so much as in these debates in general, people need to become better readers and quit trying to be metaphysicians because they're not really good at right. it. Right. Well, well, and, and one of the points I made, I made in immediate response to the Genesis, uh, two Genesis narratives that Chris picks, because remember, he, I mean, his, his, he, he's, he's the affirmative in the debate that's saying God predetermines everything. Um, and so the two passages, the first two passages he picks are both narratives. Um, and, 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 and when I pointed out that he was more, you know, kind of seems to be more of a philosophical assumption being read into the text rather than a biblical conclusion drawn from the text, the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. His, his response to that was to say, well, yeah, well, this verse isn't meant to be the conclusive evidence for determinism. It's just showing an implicit that, it, that determinism would be required in order to bring about, you know, this thing with Rebecca or this thing with Joseph. Um, and so and so determinism must be necessary. Well, OK, so let's go to those other verses that you think um, are explicitly didactically teaching determinism. And let's talk about those because that's the affirmative claim you're making. Don't jump to the narratives first because he had every ability to pick whatever verse he wanted in order to, to establish his point that determinism is required uh, within scripture, that determinism is explicitly taught within scripture. So it's easy to rebut the two narratives because I, I, it's not a philosophical debate. It's an exegetical. So all I have to do is point to the intention of the author. Was the intention of the author uh, of the narrative for Rebecca or Joseph intending to try to prove omnideterminism of all people's pride, lust, desires? Well, obviously not. It was, it was intended to uh, talk about how uh, God, uh, supernaturally worked in such a way that we can't possibly begin to understand in a way to answer a prayer of, of Abraham's servant to ensure that Rebecca was his wife. Okay. So how does that prove determinism? How is determinism necessary from, from that? Right. Narrative? And it's not even mysterious. I mean, God does work in mysterious ways, but we can think of so many analogies for, for a lot of these things. That's the point of analogy and people should try to pick apart analogies. They need to pick apart the point of the analogy if they have a problem. But there's so many analogies, um, just what you were talking about, super foreknow, like I foreknow things all day long and I've predestined, I predestined things all day long. I predestined things for other people all day long. Sorry. I just asked Braxton. I give him enough work and he complains to me about it. Uh, you're next, Layton. So I can, I, I can use, I can use all kinds of things as rods in my hand when other people have intentions to do other things. And I, if people can do that without metaphysical determinism, I don't see why God, how much more so can God do it without needing determinism to be true? I think people think people, people create a lot of equivocation fallacies here because a Molinist could say very easily, yeah, God predetermines everything. Determine and determinism, you can't make equivocation fallacies. Those aren't the same thing to determine something and for something to be deterministically determined are two different things. Like, 
All of my free will actions can be compatible with God's plans for the cosmos. That doesn't mean compatibilism is therefore true because compatibilism is the idea that free will is compatible with determinism. But when I say that what I'm going to do is compatible with what God's plans for me are, that doesn't mean I'm evoking compatibilism as a philosophical, theistic, deterministic metaphysic. So we need to be careful what we say here and how and, and be crystal clear, because I think a lot of people get confused, that if I say God predetermines something, that doesn't mean determinism. Right. And I think the Molinism thing is a great is a great point. I mean, Molinists would have absolutely no problem with the Isaac and Rebecca thing. I mean, uh, William Lane Craig goes on and on about how look, just think about how it is that God would have to choose among a feasible world of free creatures in which uh, all of these things conspire such that Winston Churchill is born. You know, so I mean, that is as specific. And that given is your the fact William Lane Craig. Well, I can do a much better William Lane Craig, uh, Jonathan. And I, especially if when you say something silly, I kind of have this condescending tone. But anyway, uh, the point is that being much further along down the uh, trail of human history is even more specific than the Isaac and Rebecca thing. But you make a fair point that, yeah, we can explain those things philosophically, but you're looking for a text here, Chris, that actually intends to teach, the author intends to teach the determinism. Is that what you're saying? Well, if it's an exegetical debate, it has to be. It has to have, it has to have a, a, a clear exegetical meaning the author intended to teach this particular uh, philosophical worldview or this particular doctrinal uh, truth. Um, and neither one of Genesis passages, now you may argue that Acts 4 could meet that criteria, and we do discuss that later in the broadcast, but um, but neither one of the Genesis past narratives that he re referenced have uh, any kind of didactic teaching which would in any way indicate that the intention of the author was to teach omnideterminism of men. And, and I would even argue what I argued in the debate was um, if you've got, let's say you've got five possible philosophical explanations as to how God brings about this particular narrative. Um, and, and one of those impugns God's character by and 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 um, contradicts something that the Bible says elsewhere, like uh, pride is not from the Father but from the world. The first uh, first to, uh, John two sixteen verse says, then you can't conclude that is one of the possible philosophical options. You 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 have to take it off the table. So you're left with four possible options. And, and one of them says, like, open theism, for example, and I'll, I'll uh, stir up my open theist friends uh, pretty good here with this comment by saying, okay, well, there's other verses that talk about um, God's knowledge of all things. Um, and therefore, I have to take that one off the table because open theism, it, the claims of open theism contradict other very clear, explicit didactic texts about the character of God. Now, I notice that's debatable, and you can debate those points, but... That the point I'm trying to say is that if you've got four or five different philosophical possibilities and it seems clear that other verses take those philosophical uh, possibilities off the table, then th that is the argument that's falsifying that possibility. And Chris never answered that argument. He never went there. He never went to 1 John 2.16. He never answered that argument. He just went to, again, back to the grammatical point that I already conceded um, and, and, and focused on things that were really inconsequential to the point I was uh, attempting to debate. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else. If you want to do that, if you want to take just uh, narrative stories and try to look at the uh, philosophical 
uh, implications yeah. that may arise from those, then we c that works in our favor all day long. That, I mean, that works in the open theist favor all day long. Classical theism doesn't survive page two of the Bible when God wants to see what Adam names the animals. I mean, you can if if you want to start using those kinds of texts to make metaphysical claims. I mean, I've said many you know, times that if you go to uh, look at the story of Cain and Abel, I mean, after Cain offers a bad sacrifice or bad offering, but before. Uh, he ends up killing Abel. Uh, God strongly implies that, hey, you you don't have to do this. You can do better than this. You you know you can you can do otherwise. Well, um, if determinism is true, then and and I know people want to make a big deal out of the difference between categorical and conditional ability ever since Binyon's book came out. But the fact of the matter is that we we understand that to be a smokescreen. If you can't, you can't. And so if you're determined that you can't, you can't. And so either God is outright lying to Cain or being incredibly misleading and deceptive to Cain. Take your pick. Mm. Well, it's, it's well-written smoke, but it, it, it is still smoke. Oh, I think, and that's one of the things about Chris Day and Bignon is I think that they both give us the very best in uh, philosophical. <laughs> in, in, well, in, in a case, I mean, Leighton already said Sorry. that. Leighton already said this in a case to defend uh, philosophically these 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 things that they from their position and yeah. and the thing about it is I think that Binyon's book I agree with many of my philosophically minded Calvinist brothers and sisters that that book is probably the best treatment of it philosophically and one of the things I also appreciate in order to get to that good treatment or the best of all possible treatments <laughs> is that uh, is that both Chris and Binyon are willing to say things that I think a lot of Calvinists will not say because they want to kind of hold to a J.I. Packer type of Calvinism that doesn't come right out and affirm right, some right. of these really hard things. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, well and, and, that's and that's why I really focused on, very, towards, towards the very, very end, end, I wanted to focus on it earlier, but we didn't get to it. But towards the very end, I kind of threw in the whole issue of the factors beyond the agent's control. Because, because ultimately, ultimately that's, that's what libertarianism, libertarianism is seeking to defeat, defeat is that somehow people are, are judged or condemned because of or due to factors that are beyond their control, which I think intuitively we know it to be wrong. In, in every other situation, I think even our Calvinistic friends would, would conclude with us that to condemn somebody because of something that is beyond their control in every sense of the word is intuitively evil, intuitively wrong. Intuitively wrong to condemn somebody because of the color of their skin, because that's a factor beyond their control. It's intuitively wrong to condemn somebody for a mental deficiency because it's a factor beyond their control. It's intuitively wrong to to condemn somebody that you found out had a, a, a mad scientist put a note in their brain controlling their desires. It's intuitively wrong to condemn them for their actions if you found that to be true. Uh, it's intuitively wrong to judge and condemn people due to factors beyond their control. This is one of the reasons that so many Calvinists will concede that babies that are aborted or infants who die go to heaven. The reason, the only reason they concede that is because they intuitively know that it is wrong to condemn somebody for factors beyond their control. And, it, and it's obvious that an aborted baby uh, is, is being aborted and, 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 and for factors beyond their control and should not uh, suffer a punishment for things that they never could control or choices they never could make. Um, and yet under the deterministic worldview, an 80-year-old soul is, has no more control over his actions and behavior than a, an aborted infant soul. That's right.
Um, and therefore, intuitively, we know it is just as wrong to condemn the 80-year-old under determinism as it is the eight-month-old under determinism, because in both situations, they are being condemned for factors that are beyond their control. That, Bignong's book never answers. It just, uh, special pleading says, oh, well, it's, it's wrong to condemn them if they have no arms, but if they have no desire... Despite the reason they have no desire, if they have no desire to hug, as is the analogy that he uses there, then he's condemnable. Yeah, you're speaking uh, okay. to the difference between the. Go ahead. No, you. You're speaking to the difference between the categorical and conditional ability that Bignon talks about and that others have mentioned, and it, it is the idea that uh, so long as you have the reasoning faculties and uh, the physical abilities to do a particular thing that you're commanded to do. Um, even if you're determined not to do it, which means you will not and cannot, unchangeably cannot do it, uh, so long as right. you have it's these faculties. Control. Yeah. Yeah. So, so long. Go ahead. Sorry. So long as you. Yeah. Because of some a causal chain uh, or divine immediate act from God. So long as you could have done it if you'd been determined, then we hold you responsible. Now this is interesting. Whereas if you if you yeah. w weren't determined to do it and didn't have the cognitive abilities or the, the physical structure where you could do it, well, then now you're off the hook. And here's the point I want to make, and I've made this with people online when we've discussed Bignon's book, and it's this. So you are agreeing that, so the example given is, that you just referenced is, if a guy has no arms and another guy has arms, and they're both determined not to do a particular thing that they're commanded to do, i.e. hug somebody. Now, I don't know. This is a strange analogy to me, but whatever. Um, it, the, the guy that's commanded to hug someone and doesn't but has arms, he is held morally responsible because if he were determined to, he could have hugged the man. But with the guy with no arms, even though he's also not determined to do it, he's off the hook because even if he had been determined, you run into that, that problem there because he didn't have arms. But in both cases, the person is determined not to do the thing and in no wise could actually do it. So here's how I put it to people. You realize that with the guy with no arms, it would be immoral to hold him morally culpable for not doing the thing that he's been commanded to do, even though he's determined not to do it. Sorry, we're a functioning seminary and we have phones. Um, but the, so you realize, but, but get this point. You realize, you, you, my Calvinist friend, you, Bignon, you others, realize it would be morally reprehensible to hold this man accountable when he doesn't even have arms, even though he's determined not to, even if he had arms. Whereas with the guy that has arms and he doesn't hug when he's commanded to, even though he's determined in the same sense that the other guy is determined, he is morally responsible. Okay, well, whatever made you think that it was wrong to hold the guy, uh, to, to not hold the guy morally responsible who has no arms, whatever made you think, let him off the hook, why in the world wouldn't you let the other guy off the hook? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm was curious. Brent, well, I want to ask you about your, your free will argument in relation to this because it's really interesting to me that... The free will argument that you, you, part of you, what you were saying about it is that no matter what um, you come up, conclude about determinism, you can't rationally affirm it. Well, kind of in the same way, uh, no matter what faculties you might have, just because you have arms versus not have arms, you have reason faculties versus not, you, it seems like there's a chain, whether they like dominoes or not, it seems like 
you have these faculties, but you're not controlling those faculties. You're just receiving yeah. whatever inputs were programmed to be there. Right. Yeah. So, right. so when you receive these, when you're just in, getting inputs beyond your control, you're even your very process of reasoning is determined. Right. Yeah. And in this right. case, it's God determining. So having reasonable fact, reason faculties and having arms to hug means almost nothing. If everything that is inputted into the person with who's thinking about it and has the arms to not hug, how, where's the difference? No. In either case, well, can't do the, it. The I would add, and well, and you guys can do this uh, probably because I think, well, I know, uh, Braxton, you've read the book, Bing, uh, Bing Young's book. I think Pritchett maybe has, maybe has, I'm not sure, but um, you're good at entering into your opponent's mind and, and anticipating what his arguments would be. So I'm, I'm interested in what you think Bing Young would say, or maybe Chris Date would say, if asked the question, why? Would it, would it be wrong to hold, to hold somebody accountable for not hugging who doesn't have arms? Yes. And I'll tell you something. I, I've actually been challenged on this and this, and I actually tried to preempt it just now a moment ago because what I've heard said and what I think Mignon might say is when you say Braxton, that uh, the guy who has arms is commanded to hug and doesn't hug because he's determined not to hug, that that man shouldn't be held morally responsible where the other guy with no arms uh, uh, shouldn't be held in the same way that he shouldn't be held morally responsible. You're merely presuming that you're just intuiting that you're just, you're just, you, you can provide no evidence of that besides just, it feels wrong. I'm just presupposing it. Whereas, uh, but, and so my response to that is, well, are you not presupposing it and presuming it to be true that the guy with no arms shouldn't be held morally responsible? And they'll have to say that's why that's called special pleading, right? right. And they'll say where, they'll say, yeah, where, he should he shouldn't be held morally responsible, and everybody knows that, right? We can imagine them saying, and I'm saying, right? And I'm saying, if you think there's something in your head that forces you to say this guy with no arms can't be held morally responsible, because of course he couldn't do it. Of course it just seems wrong to hold him morally responsible. Okay, whatever is leading you to have to say that, I grant you it's intuitive, but whatever's leading you to have to say that, guess what? That's the very reason we have to say that about the guy who's That's determined right. but has arms, because in neither case can yeah. he yeah. do it. Which is, Which exactly is exactly why I point to infants that are aborted as being saved, even under Cal many, many, Cal not all, but many Calvinists, uh, theologians like Piper and others do affirm that infants are saved. Um, because why? Because of factors that are beyond their control, because they aren't going to be condemned for factors beyond their control. Just like it's not control of the man without arms ability to hug. And so you intuitively know we can't judge that guy. Okay. We can't condemn that guy. Right. That intuitive knowledge is the exact same thing we're appealing to as to why you can't condemn the guy who is totally disabled from birth, morally speaking, under the TULIP systematic. Um, and that charge, Bingyong never addresses in his book. He just special pleads and says, you can, you know, just an ad hoc claim, if you will, just, oh, yeah, you, you can, you can't condemn this guy with no arms, but you can condemn the guy with arms. And I think that, the, and, and I'll, and I don't, I don't like to try and psychologize my opponents, but I, but I'm going to say this. I do not believe that they would come to any other conclusion but the one that you and I have arrived at. If it were not for the fact that they think 
that, well, that one, their systematic holds this, their grid holds this, but secondly, they really do believe the Bible teaches this. Now, here's where I appreciate my Calvinist friends. If they really think the Bible teaches that and they recognize it's tough, but the Bible teaches that, well, praise God that you're trying to uphold the Bible. I appreciate that you're going to the Bible even when it drives against your intuitions because we all have to do that because for a lot of people, it seems intuitively wrong what we think, uh, what the Bible teaches about uh, homosexuality, but we go to the, we go to the Bible and the Bible's our authority. So I appreciate that, but I just think it's, but you don't have to hold that systematic. We think there's a better systematic that actually affirms right. your intuitions that, because I do not, I just don't believe unless they've convinced themselves of it, um, that they would not come to the same conclusion as us about the guy with arms that's determined not to hug versus the guy with no arms that's determined not to hug. Yeah, that's why I thought this debate was kind of interesting, that it was an exegetical debate uh, in fighting over passages when I've, I've told you all my thing is we're not going to talk about the Bible. You have your interpretation, I have my interpretation. Let's see if your idea is even can get off the ground before we talk about any Bible verse. I mean, because you have your interpretation of Acts 4, they have theirs. Uh, you can both make it work, I guess. Let's see if your let's see if your position, theistic determinism of whatever variety, is worthy to be considered to take into the Bible and find it there in the first place. Right, so, right. Uh, for for us, we think that um, determinism creates logical contradictions in the character of God. Uh, it, it creates contradictions in the existence of God, I think, because uh, it attacks some of his attributes. Um, so uh, we need to have those kind of conversations. But in the exegetical sense, I, I found it interesting that Chris, so in Romans 8, uh, 29, when people talk about for new, they, they go to some sort of, well, this language has certain whatever uh, about intimate knowing of people, which is fine. Um, I don't, I still kind of object to it. I agree with Thomas Morris. I agree with James Barr before him that you can't just dump all this freight into words before just because God's a subject. But there's a sense where he's he's not talking about in Acts 2, he tried to preempt any, you know, I don't know if you're going to make this argument or not. I thought it was interesting where he delivered uh, uh, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Well, it's not foreknew. It's not saying God foreknew anybody. It's now it's, it's, foreknowledge. It's this thing that God has. Um, and so I, I kind of thought it was interesting that not only was he treating that as a super duper word in Acts 2, but he said, you can't use that to understand Acts 4, even though the author was reporting this information two chapters prior to it about the same thing. So I, I thought that that was interesting right, right. Uh, that Chris would do that. I think it's just a problem of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, premises and uh, presuppositions that you can make these super duper words and then uh, then say, but well, the word, but ignore it anyway because even though it's yeah, the same right. author reporting this information about this if, the same event about a definite plan of foreknowledge, he's going to talk about it in Acts four. He's going to report the, the 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 prayer that they give, and but don't read any. Even though I'm going to read all this stuff in Acts two, don't read anything from Acts two into Acts four. Right? I, I thought that that was interesting. What say you? Well, well, I, I, I think the foreknowledge aspect of things is is, is, is the, the bigger issue because, issue because for for, for determinist, determinist um, foreknowledge, foreknowledge just means 
predeterminism. predeterminism. I mean, it, I mean it, 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 the, the, word the word predeterminism would be a better, be a better word. word. Or or it means uh, some to, sort to, of intimate can, knowing. You know, it's not about just knowing uh, events and persons and whatever. It's a kind of a they use it as an intimate knowing uh, way of knowing because of how uh, the Adah and Hebrew and the Old Testament sometimes, not nearly as much as they claim, but sometimes has that connotation of an intimacy knowing Adam knew his wife. You know, sometimes it has a sexual connotation. Sometimes it just has a deep friendship. So they, they, they would read more into that. Uh, but yes, you're right. Some of them say, some of them go the, another way and say, well, it's just another way of saying foreordaining. And it seems like Chris was, uh, now I dispute that semantic range anyway. Uh, but it seems like he was doing illegitimate totality transfer because when I heard him uh, talking about this with you, it seems like he dumped, it can mean for, for ordaining and it has an intimate knowledge of people. He was dumping all of these different kinds of meanings into Acts 2 right before he said, but ignore that anyway because it doesn't help you in Acts 4. Uh, so I, I thought that was, but yeah, they. it seems like they have that meaning and then the, this meaning of foreordination like you're talking about. Uh, crazy. Well, and well, there's and no, there's no, there's no need, need to take, to take if, the, if a better word is possible, then he, he could use a better word. He could use the word predetermination or preordination. There, there's Greek, there, there's a Greek word for those words. If foreknowledge is the best word, which we would assume under inspiration, God would know the best word for the author to be inspired to use. He uses the term to know beforehand. Um, and to know something beforehand doesn't mean to determine something beforehand. Right. Never has, never will. Um, and so just as you mentioned before, Billy Bob or whoever can have a general foreknowledge of what criminals would do in a given circumstance. Well, how much more so would God have the ability to foreknow what Judas would do in a, in a given circumstance or what a pilot would do in a given circumstance or what uh, Joseph's brothers would do in a given circumstance? Um, and so God's knowledge being perfect uh, and infinite, he would have even better ability than Billy Bob. And so if Billy Bob, cop, can pull off uh, bringing about an event that's evil without himself being implicit in that evil or the cause of people's pride or determinations, or I mean, all their evil intentions, then how much more could God use his ability to foreknow things? And and I think what the, the, what the determinist does is they, they're removing the supernatural aspect of this ability to know what free creatures will do because God doesn't know what free creatures will do under determinism. He simply is telling you what he has determined for these determined creatures to do right. beforehand. Like the computer programmer analogy that I use in the discussion. Yeah, it, well, it's, it, it seems to me that determinism, as we've stated, is not required to understand any passage in the Bible. And you would think because of all the problems of determinism, which is, which is ultimately the... Uh, I don't want to say the idol of Calvinism, but it, that is their their central idea, right? Um, but if you can read any text without determinism, my argument is that you should. And I want to plug a thing on your site because you have a great uh, section uh, article that you wrote a couple years ago. I think it was three years ago on like Proverbs sixteen type verses and stuff like that. That even those kind of verses. Um, you have great explanations about the, the casting of the laws and determining the steps and stuff. So if you can, maybe you can send us a link. We'll post that in the show notes. But yeah, but you made a good point there that I want to pick up on, which is like, um, uh, as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Does determinism answer that? Does does it, would it answer it? Yes, it would. But you know what else would answer it? 
There are several other things that would answer it. Now, you could go with Leighton's explanation that uh, these were the same people that in the same chapter were already God-fearing Gentiles in the mm-hmm. city, right, um, that had already heard the preaching. Uh, and then, Or you could go with um, the, they were disposed, or you could go with your answer, Jonathan, the correct that one. they believed what they had, what, what did Paul they believe? Just, they believed what, what they he just, just heard. heard. Yes. Okay. All of these are, are possibilities. You could even go with a Molinism answer, but the, all of these are possibilities. Is Calvinism's answer one of those possible answers? It is an answer that would account for what was said there, but why would you select that one when uh, there are so so many better ones that should come ahead of that right. that don't have that don't do the damage to God's character that I think that one does? Well, and also, well, also that not only doing God, I mean, that may, I mean, that may be, um, they, they, Calvinists, Calvinists may feel like that's an overstatement to say it's doing damage to God's character, but it's, so, it's, it's most certainly, at least seemingly, uh, contradicting other passages like the fact that pride doesn't come from God, but from the world or other passages that said this didn't even enter my mind or I didn't decree this, uh, to cause Judah to sin. In other words, the passages over and over and over again, the James passage that we referenced are separating God from the cause of evil. That's obviously the intention of the author is to say, God is not implicit in this killing of children to Molech. God is not implicit in the temptation of people. God is not implicit in your pride and your lust. Um, it's clearly, that's the intention of the author in those texts. Therefore, it takes determinism off the table as a possible explanation of uh, Acts 13 or of Genesis 50 or of any of these other texts that are in question. It because those are contradicting determinism's claims. And that that's where you get to an exegetical argument rather than a philosophical argument or even a grammatical argument about what the word meant meant. Um, and, and that's where I think the debate fell short is that we ended up focusing on what the word meant meant, like the word is is uh, in the political debates. You know, you just go, oh, okay, why are we microscopically focusing on the word is when obviously we're talking about um, what was clearly done by the person and what was intended by the person. I think what ends up happening is that when people are are put into a debate kind of situation and they're having to defend their issue, what they'll do is they'll get more microscopic and more microscopic and more microscopic, focusing upon a particular phrase and turn of a word or a little, uh, you know, node over the top of a particular, um, you know, letter within the alphabet of the original language and say, oh, well, that means this or that must mean that. I don't, it, 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 it unnecessarily overcomplicates what I think is the clear intention of the author in order to try to make a, you know, some bigger philosophical point. Well, that's well the mind I do well. think it's important to understand the meaning of words and in, 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 in their usage. But I, if it doesn't, if, if number one, you've said, yeah, that's not my argument. So why are you talking about it? If nobody disagrees and why go on and on about it? Right. If your opponent can say, so what then, and it, and that be meaningful, then you need a better argument, I think. Right. You know, for example, whenever in uh, whenever people like Jesus mythicists or whatever try to say, well, look, there were all these other people that had these uh, similarities to the Christian story and the similarities to the Jesus account. I, I, my answer to that is, I mean, we can say a lot about that, but one answer is, so what? I mean, you know, if you had a guy named Jesus 10 years before Jesus, he died 10 years before Jesus was born and had 12 disciples and all these kind of things, it doesn't mean that the actual story wasn't true. So, so what? And in your case, you're saying, okay, I, I hear your grammatical case. So what? My, my, uh, 
explanation works with that one. But now let's um let's change gears for just a minute before we close, Leighton, and um let's uh let let I want to ask you a, a meaningful question. You've got this new book out, and so I want to know if I've already got the Potter's Promise. Why do I need God's provision for all? <laughs> well, well, first, I want to thank Trinity for publishing the books, both of the books, The Potter's Promise and uh, God's Provision for All. Uh, God's Provision all, for All is more of a, a positive affirmation and biblical defense of provisionism uh, and, and, and God's justice and God's goodness, God's fairness. Um, it, whereas um, The Potter's Promise was really more of, first, my, my journey in and out of Calvinism, some philosophical arguments as to why. Why I believe what I believe, some of my journey in and out of Calvinism, and why I, I did not feel like theologically it held any more water, or some things that I'd come to understand about Calvinism uh, and its claims that that led me to abandon or recant Calvinism that I'd held to for over a decade of my life, and was a card-carrying member of the Reformed tradition in the sense that I, I liked being a Calvinist and I wanted to remain a Calvinist even when I was studying uh, contrary doctrines to it, um, and, and I explain those things, and then I get into some of the biblical narratives with John 6 and Ephesians 1, and most especially the largest portion of Potter's Promise is, uh, as you guys know, an exegetical commentary over Romans chapter 9, um, which was really kind of an outflow of the, the preparation work that I'd done uh, for my debate with James White. Um, and then this this particular book, however, is instead, it didn't even mention Calvinism except briefly in one of the appendices that is trying to address the, the questions and labels. It doesn't even bring up Calvinism. It is, it is specifically making a positive affirmation for what we have, have deemed a tra traditional soteriology within the Southern Baptist Convention and what we're also calling provisionism, is that God provides because he's a good God, not because he's required to, not because he's obligated to, not because he needs our permission or he needs people or something like that. Sometimes we're accused of God provides for the needy because he's, he's good. We call somebody good. Uh, the analogy I use in the book is my grandfather who I grew up with. And he was one of those men uh, who always, people always come up to me and say, you man, your grandpa's such a good guy. But they weren't just saying that because they felt like, you know, give a platitude because he's died now. And so I just want to say this nice thing about your grandpa. They would actually give me examples of times that he did things for them. He stopped and helped fix their car. He gave them uh, tools or he gave them, a, a, you know, a refrigerator or something like that. He was always doing nice things for people. He was helping people in need. And so it was demonstrably good in the sense that he was showing his character by the good things he was doing to provide for those in need. Well, we say God is good for the same reason. He's recognizably good. Why? Because he actually helps people who are in need. He actually provides for them. He doesn't pass by like the Levi in the Good Samaritan story on the other side of the road and just leave them in their uh, in their um, incapacitated state. But on Calvinism, if we're going to insert Calvinism in this, Calvinism, that's exactly what God's doing to most of humanity, the mass of humanity, all the reprobates, the non-elect. He has passed by. They even use that term, pass by. He has let them in, left them in their completely disabled condition on the side of the road, broken and, and, and disheveled without any hope of salvation. And I can't think of anything worse than a lost soul except for a lost soul 
that, that no one's looking for. And and I think that that lost soul doesn't exist in our world because God is desiring for the salvation of every man, woman, boy, and girl, and he has provided the means for the salvation of every man, woman, boy, and girl, and this book is a defense of that truth. Well, wow. Well, amen. I do want to encourage you, uh, after after listening to your, your exchange with Chris, um, we want to publish Chris on anything because I think he did a lot better job bringing up his book every five minutes than you did bringing up your book every five minutes. You can, I think you could certainly take that away from Chris that you need to plug your Trinity academic press books and every other sentence, even if you sound like you're forcing it like he did. Well, uh, I just want to tell you, Layton, we are proud at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary to have you as a professor. That's right. And uh, a lot of students come here because they want to learn from you. And so you're a great asset to our school. And I think it speaks to the quality of the education that people can get here. And so as you do in all of your uh, programs, we want to encourage anyone, if you'd like to learn directly from Layton Flowers and hear stuff that you wouldn't hear necessarily mm-hmm on his podcast uh you know some of the more nitty-gritty stuff that you would get in the classroom then uh sign up for a degree program at trinity college of the bible and theological seminary it won't cost you nearly as much as it will at some places but it will be um i think as valuable or more valuable and so i would hope that you would uh, check out trinity sem.edu you can also learn christian apologetics and evangelism from me you can learn a whole bunch of stuff from jonathan <laughs> dr bridget and uh, then you can learn from Steve Gregg. You can learn from all kinds of people, Jim Chatham. Uh, and so uh, we want to highlight our professors. And yeah. I can't think of anyone I want to highlight more than I want to highlight Layton well, Flowers. Well, let me, well, let me say something about Trinity uh, as well. As one who graduated from Southwestern and then from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, and now one who has taught for Trinity for uh, maybe almost two years. No, now. about three years. Um, now. I will. It's been three. It's been three? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Um, I will say that you will be challenged just as much, if not more, in your education at Trinity than you would at those other schools. I'm not putting down those other schools. I think they're great institutions. But if you think because Trinity is primarily an online institution that you're somehow going to get shortchanged with your education, you are mistaken. In fact, Pritchett and other graders are probably a little bit more um, strenuous than some of the graders that I ran into in my education process. Um, you will be pushed, and uh, it, it will be a, a, a strong education that you'll be getting online. Second thing I want to emphasize with this is that because of the access of Trinity anywhere in the country and because of the fact that they don't have to pay for huge buildings and maintaining of huge buildings and the building of new huge buildings and dorms and all these other things, they keep the price that is affordable so that you, wherever you are in the world, on the mission field or wherever you are in your life uh, you know, span of raising children and all the other things, you're going to be able to have the flexibility to take the courses when you want to. Now, I know we may sound like a commercial for Trinity. Uh, they're not asking me to say all of these things. I'm saying this because this is what I have learned and the reason I partnered with Trinity, even though I love these other schools uh, within my own state and would highly recommend people to go to. I think Trinity should be uh, one of the first schools that you consider for in high, higher education because of the level of education and because of the great people. And it's balanced. Not many schools can say they have James White as a, re- a required book and Leighton Flowers as a required book for a course. Uh, many of the seminaries, uh, <coughs> Southern, uh, might just have you read 
I'm a Calvinist source because they want to be more about indoctrinating their students to believe a particular soteriological worldview, whereas Trinity says, we're not afraid of you learning what the Calvinists think. We're not afraid of even hiring Calvinist professors because we actually want you to have an education, not just an indoctrination where you just adopt and only hear from our echo chamber of you know, sociologically minded uh, folks. And so I, I commend Trinity for being a, a higher place of education. Well, thanks, Leighton. And we really enjoyed having you on the show today. Yeah. And if um, uh, if you haven't checked out Soteriology 101, we hope that you will. And check out his website, not just the podcast and, and YouTube channel, but yeah, go subscribe to his YouTube channel, subscribe to this YouTube channel, and uh, check out everything that they have to offer. Buy the book. You need this book. Yes. You need to see the ways in which uh, God provides for us and what that says about who he is and how the Bible um, reveals that. So uh, thanks, Leighton. And yeah, we'll- and if you, haven't, if you haven't checked out the Unbelievable debate, go check that out on Unbelievable radio or premier radio or do you have the link for that you have the where they can find we'll put it? the link in the tr- yeah because it, it really is a yeah. model of civil discussion between two good brothers uh having fun hashing out these ideas so go check out that so that you know what we're talking about if you haven't listened to it so thanks Layton, for coming on we really Thank you, appreciate brother. it we'll see you thanks guys thanks guys it's my pleasure and we'll see you next time on trinity radio this is the last word Soterio Band, it was fun while it lasted, but it really wasn't. In fact, we had people telling us that it was a mistake from the beginning. So, who's right? Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? I don't know. But I do know that it's now gone. And it wasn't you, it was me. like more content click here and keep watching bible studies click up here and finally we want you to subscribe we need more subscribers so click here